The following sermon is from Redemption Bible Church of New Braunfels, where we are proclaiming the authority of God's Word without apology, in order to fulfill the Great Commission in the spirit of the Great Commandment. So today we uh, come to Philippians chapter 4, uh, verses 4 to 9 in our verse-by-verse study of this wonderful thank you card, this God-breathed letter from the Apostle Paul to his precious friends in the city of Philippi. And I was uh, reminded as we think about peace, durable peace, that uh, there was a man who purported to have gone to his therapist and he uh, sat down in the chair and his therapist said, what seems to be the problem? And he said, well, uh, doc, sometimes I feel like I'm a wigwam and other times I feel like I'm a teepee. And uh, the doctor said, well, I know exactly what your problem is. He said, you're too tense. (laughs) But you know, that that illustrates for us in kind of a a funny way that that all of us struggle uh, with the elusive journey to find peace and calmness of soul. Do we not? I remember years ago seeing the bumper sticker, Visualize World Peas, P-E-A-S. You've seen that one. And leaders in their campaigns promise to give us peace. If there's ever a time in human history that we've seen anything but peace, it's right now, right here, isn't it? Uh, Rioting and racism and political polarization and a worldwide pandemic, not to speak of the fact that in our own individual marriages and in our homes and in our relationships, there seems to be constant conflict, uh, constant angst, you bug me's. Just on a personal level, some of you right now on the inside may be putting a smile on the outside, but on the inside, you're, you're dying on the vine. You just soul of mind. Your mind is racing. And so durability of peace is a big topic, and it is relevant for all of us. And I just want to remind us all that at the very beginning, that the only basis for peace is Jesus Christ and a relationship with him. Romans 5.1 says, Therefore, as we, we have been justified by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, we have peace with God. So the first thing I just want to say to all of us this morning is, do you have peace with God? You were at odds with God because of sin. He was at odds with you because He is holy and pure and righteous. And the only way that there can be peace between you and your Creator is through looking away from yourself to Jesus, who died and took the punishment for all of your sin and came alive again on that third day, and He provided the only way that you can enter into a peace relationship with God. And by the way, if you are my brother, my sister in Jesus, no matter how you feel, no matter how deep the anxiety that... Uh, tears at your heart, or if you're feeling isolated this morning, alone this morning, you can rejoice that you have peace with God through Jesus. That is so certain. But I would want to take your attention to the very heart of what God's Word is comforting us with this morning. And if you want to just grab the big idea of what we're going to talk about in these verses that I'll read in a minute... It's this, God's peace and God's presence are more than enough for all of your 
cares and conflicts. Isn't that good news? You're so big, or maybe it feels so small that you don't even want to talk about it, or too big and embarrassing that you don't want to talk about it. Whatever it is, God's peace and His presence are more than enough. And so I want us to look at verses 4 to 9 together, and I would invite you to follow along as I read. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything. Stop worrying about even one thing. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true... Whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. This is God's word, and it is so encouraging if you're burdened down with all of the what-ifs and if-onlys of life today, this is so good. Notice in verse 5, he ends with this promise, the Lord is near. In verse 7, he says, something's available to you. It's the peace of God that passes human understanding. The therapist can't give it to you. The happy pill can't ultimately give it to you. Your loved one ultimately can't give it to you. That peace of God can guard your heart and your mind in Christ Jesus. And then he bookends this. At the very end of verse 9, he says this, the God of peace. See, ultimately we're not after the peace, but we're after the God of peace. He will be with you. You know, as we were singing these wonderful songs, I was thinking about Hebrews 13, 5b, that the Lord has said, I will never, ever leave you nor forsake you. How precious is the presence of God. And so let's look at this. First of all, God's peace and presence, if you're taking notes, you can put this down, are enough. Therefore, fight for satisfaction in Christ. Notice, he says, rejoice in the Lord always. And it's kind of like we need a reminder, don't we? Again, I will say rejoice. I think that the verb here is in a command form is indicative of the fact that we do not naturally rejoice in the Lord. It doesn't naturally come up in our DNA. Many of us wake up every morning, particularly springing forward and getting up in the rain, right? with a lot of negativity. There was a woman who went to the office and her co-worker asked, did you wake up grouchy this morning? And she said, no, I let him sleep in. <laughs> and, and I mean, if you think about it, even the George Mueller, I mean, if you know anything about George Mueller, he was a spiritual dude. And, and as a mature believer, he said, my first and primary order of business each and every day is to get my soul in a happy state in the Lord. So this is a lifelong pursuit. 
It doesn't mean that our circumstances are going to be awesome. You know, it doesn't mean that we're not going to struggle with unpaid bills and job losses and uh, property taxes going through the roof. It doesn't mean that sin and sorrow and death do not uh, ultimately find their way into my relationships, in fact, even into my own life. It doesn't mean that, that people will ultimately not let me down. That friends will not ultimately unfriend me in some cases. And, and what we're being reminded of is that the only unreliable, durable, stable, unwavering, unchanging source of joy is God. Is God. I mean, if there was anybody that knew what rejoicing in the Lord was, it was the Apostle Paul. I mean, the dude's with Silas back in Acts 16, and he's seeing a Roman guard 24-7. There's preachers around Rome that are preaching Christ, but they're doing it to get under Paul's skin. And he just says, you know what? I rejoice that Christ is being proclaimed. <laughs> That's what matters. <laughs> And, and then, you know, he says, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain in chapter 1 and verse 21. I mean, think about that. It's a win-win for the Apostle Paul. This is rejoicing in the Lord. He says, look, if you kill me, to be with Christ is very much better. It's better by far. But you know what? If you let me live, that's great too, because I can help you, my brothers and sisters, pursue Christ. Walk with Christ. Worship Christ and work for Christ. So he said, no matter what, you kill me, it's good. You let me live, it's good. You keep me chained, I can share Jesus with my, these soldiers. Think about the Apostle Paul. And you know, sometimes we just want to pinch Paul to make sure he was real, don't we? I feel that way. But I mean, we have the same Holy Spirit in fact, we have the whole counsel of God from Genesis to Revelation. We have the body of Christ. We have the good news of Christ. So we, whether we're surviving or thriving this morning, we can rejoice in the Lord. Whether we're quarantined with COVID or enjoying having a cool time with our close friends, we can fight for satisfaction in Christ. And then he kind of makes a, a turn from the vertical to the horizontal. He says in verse 5, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Greek word for reasonableness is so rich it is difficult to capture its beauty in a single English word. One way to think about it is to insert the word graciousness. The idea of the graciousness of humility. Because you see, if we're finding our joy in the Lord, our satisfaction in Christ, bringing our soul to a happy state in the Lord, it's going to impact people around us, is it not? Dads, moms, employees, the irritants won't irk us quite so much. Our reaction to irritating people is more like a rubber band than a twig. John Newton put it this way. He said, if you understand the grace of God, it makes the worst times bearable and the best times believable. And so, you know, as a Christian, whether you're 
in a state of blessing this morning or a state of anxiety and suffering this morning, or maybe some of both. You, you look at something you've lost and you say, you know what, it's not my main thing. I already have that. I have peace with God in Christ. And, and then if something good happens, you get uh, a pat on the back, a promotion, you, uh, you, you know, you're being blessed with some kind of a financial windfall. And you tend to want to gravitate to that. You just say, settle down, heart. Settle down. This is nice. I'm going to enjoy that, but it's not my main thing. You see, my main thing's already been dealt with at the cross. It's Christ. You see, there's a radicalness, a radical evenness of temper if the grace of God is near and dear to your heart. It's really even in verse 3, above verse 4, from last Sunday. He talks about those fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. I mean, that's a great place to go to rejoice in the Lord, is it not? Remember the disciples, they come back and they're all amped up because the demons were responding to their name. And Jesus said, don't rejoice that the demons are responding to your name. He says, rejoice that your names are written in, the, in heaven. I mean, that's something to really ultimately rejoice about. I mean, God is blessing redemption in marvelous ways. What an encouragement. But there's something even bigger than that. We have God. We have His gospel. And you can look at it and say, I lost something, but my name is written in heaven. Or you could say, I got this trophy. I, you know, had this healing in that conflict of relationship. Praise God for that. But my name is written in heaven heaven. That's even bigger. You see, that's where God's peace and His presence harness us and comfort us and encourage us. And then he kind of adds this phrase at the very end of verse 5. He says, the Lord is at hand. Now, some people think that Paul may be referencing the fact that someday Jesus is going to come a second time and He's going to catch His church up to be with Him forever. And we look forward to that. Don't we? Do you ever say, Maranatha? Come quickly, Lord Jesus. You watch the news, this fallen, broken world. You're like, Jesus, come. That could be what Paul is referencing. The Lord is near. But he could be referencing, and I think in context here, this might be more likely, that God is near us in our struggles, in our anxieties, in our struggle against sin, whether it's sin from within or dealing with the sin and suffering around us. And so we have the comfort of God's presence. So God's peace and presence are more than enough in our rejoicing and in our being patient with all people around us. But look at verses 6 and 7. You see, God's peace and presence are enough. Therefore, hand your turmoil to Him. Hand over your turmoil to Him. Let's look at verse 6. He says, do not be anxious about anything. Don't be anxious about anything made known to God. Now that is one of the most precious verses in the Bible. And it goes on to say, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. And I want to share a little bit of a personal testimony with you. I'm 56, going, heading quickly towards 57 uh, things are fading and graying. 
and hurting and slowing. But you know, I have seen both sides of verses 6 and 7 in my life. I have experienced, at different points in my life, bonafide panic attacks. I have literally passed out in front of people. Hopefully that won't happen today. <laughs> um, I have experienced insomnia. And so, so I have experienced that anxiety, those fainting fits, if you will. I have also experienced that peace of God that passes human understanding. In uh, just an example, one of many I could point to is that in the mid-90s, I was a 29-year-old husband and father of four, and it was announced to me that I had cancer, and the protocol was five, six rounds of chemotherapy. And just to give you context, I would faint at the sight of blood or the sight of a needle, or at least immediately, like, hey, man, where's the smelling salts? And, and what happened from June of 95 to Thanksgiving or Valentine Day of 96, the last treatment, chemotherapy treatment that I had, I experienced, by and large, an overwhelming peace that can only be explained by the presence and the peace of God. There's no other explanation. It was supernatural. So I've been on both sides of this. But this command almost seems like totally unrealistic. It's literally the idea of stop worrying about even one thing. <laughs> How many of you, if I asked for a show of hands, would say, man, I've had a few worries even in the last three hours or two hours, or even I woke up in the night worrying about stuff. I think probably all of our hands would go up at some point. Just keep reaching back a couple more hours. So I think it's important for us to keep hard over the door of our heart, keeping worry out. We're going to have to deal with verse 6 a bit. And let me just say that, first of all, all worry is not sin. Uh, someone described uh, worry like an alarm clock. You know, no, sometimes an alarm clock is helpful, right? I forgot to pay the rent. Oh, my goodness. It goes off in your head. That's a good kind of worry. I mean, Paul said in another letter that he wrote that all of the time he had concerns for all of the churches. He had a lot on his mind. But someone suggested that sinful worry, when we move into that area, that arena, it's like the alarm clock goes off and it just keeps going off in our head. It's never silenced. And, and that kind of thing is a joy robber, mission killer. If you are just heavy laden with worry, then you will need to run to the solution that God has given. Now, many of us would love to just find a quick fix, right? A, a way to just kiss anxiety and worry and fear and stress goodbye. And some have found help through a pill or through therapy. But ultimately, what we see is that worry goes deeper than that. Worry, anxiety, stress cannot ultimately and fully be fixed by a happy pill or a therapy session. And so what I want you to do is kind of 
maybe peel back a couple of layers of your heart and mind. Because I think when we're worried, we're just like, let's fix this, right? In fact, I think this is the way we typically read verse 6. You see if I'm reading it correctly or incorrectly. In everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to Google. Underline the word Google. Can't find it. But isn't that what we do? A problem, it's overwhelming. The immediate first thing we do is Google. You probably need to get after it and pray at the same time. I'm not saying, you know, go up on a mountain and escape. No, you, you use the practical tools that God has given you. But, but no, it's not Google it. You take your request to who? To God. Now, I believe that when you and I are anxious, there's something that we need to kind of expose about our worldview. And that is, we're basically saying the world is out of control. It needs to be under my control, and my anxiety will get it there. That'll get the job done. If I worry over this enough, I can fix this marriage. I can fix this family. I can fix this broken relationship, whatever it is. So when you find yourself stressed or worried, think about some of questions. What are you afraid of losing? Oh, loved of God, if you know Christ, what is it in that moment that you're treasuring more than Christ? Are you treasuring and longing for a family member's approval? Are you worried about your reputation, a boss's approval? Are you angst over an estranged relationship with a loved one, a health concern, a financial crisis, your child's need? I mean, there's so many that your parents need. What is it in that moment that you're afraid of losing? Here's another question to ask when anxiety attacks hit us, and they hit us all for sure. What are the what-ifs that you're stressed about? What if they don't like my post on social media? They didn't like it. Um, what if something happens to this person in my life? They're my everything. What if they don't approve of me? What if I lose my job? What if my child, and you fill in the blank. What if my parent, and you fill in the blank. You see, worry robs our joy, steals our peace, and stifles our mission, and it causes us to be consumed with me, the big number one. And that's what Jesus came to rescue us from. You see, we don't do this is in charge. Then things begin to line up and durability comes into focus. Now, where did all this stuff get started? You and I have this independent streak in us that we inherited from our forefather, Adam. I mean, if you think about Genesis 1 and 2, you, you see a couple, Adam and Eve, that just had a dependency upon God, right? I mean, they were always talking to and walking with God. And they were good with him and each other, and he was good with them. It was great. Prayer was normal. Dependency upon God was normal. What did they do? They sought independence from God. 
they stopped walking with God and their prayer link was broken. What does an unused prayer link look like? Worry, stress, anxiety. Instead of handing our turmoil over to God, our spirits fly around like severed power lines, destroying everything in its path. You know what's ironic? Is it took God himself to show us what a dependent life looked like. <laughs> he, as we saw so beautifully in Philippians 2, 1 to 8, he left heaven's glory and he became one of us. He crawled into our casket of death and anxiety and depression and he walked among us. And what's cool, if you study the Gospels, is Jesus walked in moment by moment, fully God, fully man, truly God, truly man. Every second of his life, he was dependent upon his father. He did nothing apart from his father. Jesus in human flesh showed us what a dependent life looks like. And then, of all things, he entered the anxiety of the Garden of Gethsemane. He experienced so much turmoil of soul and physical turmoil. He goes to the cross and he paid for all of our sinful anxiety, our sinful worry, our sinful fear. He became anxious, not in a sinful way, so that we could be free of anxiety. Isn't that beautiful? You see, it's all Jesus. It's all Jesus. And you know, as long as you make yourself out to be a little God grasping for control, you will struggle with the pathway that God gives us in verse 6, the pathway of prayer, the pathway of dependence upon God. But when you recognize you don't have control and you cry out for God, and as Paul Miller puts it, Sometimes he does. A lot of times he doesn't. But what he does is he walks with us through the storm, in the storm, in the insomnia, in the depression, in the anxiety. He walks with us. Now we could spend a bit of time on, you know, the how-to of prayer. But I believe I would like to share with you for a couple minutes a different way to think about this. But before we get there, I just want to say out in the Welcome Center, the foyer, at the connection table, there is a paper that's so helpful just to give you some training wheels for praying. So, man, if praying is different for you, not personal for you, like how do I do this? Pick up one of these. Talk to somebody here and say, man, can you help me walk into this life of continuous prayer? But what I want to do, just for all of us, because it's been so freeing for me and helpful to me, is I just want to borrow a few thoughts from Paul Miller's book, A Praying Life, that I found so helpful. And so you might want to, these aren't up on the screen, but just some quick notations here. Rather than focus on you know, prayer, supplication, thanksgiving, and request. Let's step back from that, and let's just think about 
praying and pray helpless and pray in community. That, that would be my outline if you're taking notes. So under the first one, pray like a child. I would just say, come messy. Come messy. Does Jesus say in Matthew 11, 28 to 30, a wonderful invitation to Christ? Does he say, come to me, all you who have learned how to concentrate in prayer, whose minds no longer wonder, and I will give you rest? <laughs> now, now what, what is it that qualifies us to come to Jesus? He says, all you that are weary and heavy laden. I think I'm, and I don't make light of this, I don't want to overstate this, but I, I feel a little ADD often. Man, my mind's always wondering. I have a hard time focusing. I, I, I struggle with that. And, and so, you know, to stay on task. But, you know, how does a child come? He just comes messy to his mom. He comes and asks, how do they do it? They wear their mom out, don't they? They just ask the same thing over and over again. They ask without deceit, without guile. They just say what's on their mind. What's interesting, if you want to look for a biblical support for this thing of coming as a child, not childish, but childlike. You understand the difference, right? Look at Matthew chapter 7, verse 7 and 9 through 11 on your own time. But that would be just an entry point to get our minds and hearts around coming as a child coming messy, coming asking, and then believing like a child. Think about a child just expects that parents are going to respond to their request, right? Even if it's nagging. Now, we get older, and then we get more cynical and less trusting, right? So that's, I think that's why Jesus commends when he sees not childishness, but childlikeness in adults. So that would be one thing. I would say when you pray, come helpless. How did you receive Christ at the beginning? Weary? Heavy laden? Weak? I mean, that's why you came, right? I mean, you had a sin problem, a debt you couldn't pay. He paid a debt he didn't owe. Colossians 2.6 says, Therefore, as you were Christ, weak, and helpless, God, I need you. Did you know that the most spiritual Christians understand their sinfulness and weakness? Because the closer you get to God's holiness, the more you see of the high standard. Even rejoicing in the Lord always and letting your gentleness be, I mean, it's cool to let it be known to that person that's nice, but not that person, right? You could just go through the list like, this is hard, this is impossible. So the more the Lord, Holy Spirit exposes you to your own heart and to his high standard, the more you come in weakness and dependence. Johnny Erickson, who has been a quadriplegic since she was 17 years old, I believe she's in her upper 60s, and when we took a tour of her place in California, uh, Johnny and friends, the guide told us that 90% of the time when Johnny comes to work, she has a smile on her face. I mean, how is that possible? Well, here's what Johnny Erickson said. She said, the truly handicapped are those who don't need God so much. Man, if you're feeling a bit helpless, that's good. That's going to foster some dependent prayer, some childlike praying. And then just remember that this is a gospel community project. 
Philippians is read to a church. It's a, it's a, it's, there's a former slave girl. There's a jailer in his family. There's Lydia, the seller of purple. A whole bunch of other people that Christ has brought into his forever family. And they're hearing these words together. Some of this, it's not just you and your private battle with anxiety and worry and stress. Guys, we need each other. That's why we have small groups. That's why we don't rush off after the service. We engage. We hold each other's arms up in prayer. Let others help you with that. You see, the beauty of this is, is that Jesus is near, verse 5. He is listening, verse 6. So we can pour out our heart to him. He will guard us with his peace, with his peace. So God's peace and God's presence are more than enough for your grumpiness, your grouchy, the cloudy days in your life, the anxiety, the stress, the fears that you're going through. And finally, we come to this, God's peace and presence are enough, therefore own your thought life. It really takes us to verse 8 and 9. He says, finally, brothers, whatever is true, here's a litmus test for your 10,000 thoughts that go through your mind every single day. That'd be a whole study, wouldn't it? Whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is, is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. I think it was D. Martin Lloyd-Jones in his book, Spiritual Depression, that said it this way. He said, you are the preacher that you listen to the most. I mean, you listen to yourself, right? And I think what Paul is saying here is own your thoughts. He's saying stop listening to yourself and start talking to yourself. That would be an implication. Stop listening to yourself because our thoughts always naturally go downward, do they not? They go to the negativity. They go to the cynicism in our life. They stop being childlike and they become very skeptical. And so Paul is helping us put some guardrails on our thought life. You see, what we think matters, and it matters more than we think. There's a very real sense in what you do and what you feel is influenced primarily by what you think. What, what you do and how you feel is very much tied to what you think. You know, there's been medical studies and people take a pill without any, you know, what do you call it? Um, placebo effect. Yeah. Women have thought themselves pregnant when they're not. There's so many... Everything that we think is so connected to how we feel and to what we do. And a mind that is filled with things that are true and, and noble and right and pure and lovely and admirable and excellent and praiseworthy are going to have little time for anxious, producing, peace-disturbing, joy-destroying thoughts. And it's a big deal to train our minds to think on things that please the Lord. It's a lot of work. So let me encourage you. This, isn't, this doesn't happen overnight. I mean, even the Apostle Paul, he goes on to tell us in verse 
9, he says, what does he say? What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things. So how do we track with Paul? I think we're getting encouraged. I mean, he knows I struggle with coveting. Romans chapter 7. 30 years later, he says, I haven't arrived yet. Philippians chapter 3. But I press on. Right? You see, the, the, the apostle Paul who said, I'm the chief of sinners, the least of the saints, the least of the apostles, undoubtedly struggled with his thought life. And so he's not up on, a, on the ivory tower saying, you guys do this. I understand. But listen, you take each and every one of those 10,000 ordinary thoughts captive to the obedience of Christ. And you don't start off in the major leagues, do you? I mean, as a six-year-old, your goal is to get there, but you start on T-ball. That the Jesus who never thought a sinful thought, an impure thought, an unrighteous thought, although he was surrounded by brokenness and he himself was broken for us, he is with you through his spirit. Now, let me just say that pleasing thoughts don't come automatically. They don't, do they? We're going to leave here. What if a driver cuts you off on the 306 or the 35? The first thought that comes to your mind is, uh, Lord, thank you for the opportunity to put the interest of others first. <laughs> or uh, what about this? What about when someone posts something about you on social media or in a text that wrongly represent you is your first thought lord thank you for this opportunity to examine my heart and to see if there are any areas i need to grow and change <laughs> you see it, it's it's not hard to think wrong thoughts is it it's it, it comes quite naturally thinking right thoughts are going to take some discipline and hard work just like the six-year-old that wants to get to the major leagues and has to go through many steps you're going to have to be intentional about this. Let's say this. Here's a good one-liner, and I like it. God is good and, what's the rest of it? All the time. You can say that in the moment. You can say, God is good. And then what happens? Your thoughts go, pew, right? They default right back to that negativity or whatever it is. Almighty. God is benevolent. Just stop and thank him for his benevolence. God is compassionate. God is divine. You just think of whatever. He is eternal. He is faithful. And just stop and thank Him and start filling that out. And then I would say another tool in your thought life is to think biblically about all areas of your life. How many times do we think something like this? I can't handle this anymore. You fill in whatever this is. I can't, I can't deal with this anymore. How do you... Push your mind to what's praiseworthy and excellent and true. 2 Corinthians 12, 9. My grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. What if you're stuck in sin? You keep repeating the same sin over and over again. I've already blown it this week anyway. I might as well. You fill in the blank. Lamentations 3. His mercies are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. What does Paul say? Forgetting what is behind, straining toward what is ahead. 
I like Proverbs 24, 16. The righteous falls seven times and rises again. What about this one? I can't stop this sin. How about 1 Corinthians 10, 13? There is no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted more than you are able, but with the temptation will make a way of escape so that you can stand up underneath it. How about this one? I'll never get married. I'll never have kids. I'll never get that dream house or dream job. Or this marriage or this kid will never be what I was expecting. You know, you just fill in the blank. What does Philippians 4.13 say? I can do all things through Christ. So man, for us to recognize that God's presence and his peace are more than enough, it doesn't mean that we're not going to have some work to do. There's going to be some thoughts to own. There's going to be some anxieties to hand off to God. And there's going to have to be some fighting for satisfaction in God. But you know what? Even as I walked through that journey for about six to eight months with cancer and chemotherapy, and dreaded the bone marrow biopsies and the CT scans and the blood draws and the chemo treatments. One day I received advice from a relative and she said this, she said, Ben, whenever you go into that machine, that full body CT scan, just remember Jesus and his anxiety on the cross. Remember that he did that for you, and he knows what you're going through. You see, the Lord is near, and he does walk 